Have any of you ever tried to copy something off of Pinterest and it didn't go so well? They have a whole series of memes called uh, Pinterest Fails. And it's the beautiful picture of somebody did something and then it looks like a child destroyed something. Those are the kind of thing I'm talking about. But have you ever tried to do something, maybe it's not Pinterest, but something and you've just failed? It hasn't quite turned out the way you wanted to. Well, I want to tell you a story, but we have to make an agreement first, and that's that you promise not to judge my wife, Kirsten, and her cooking based off this story, okay? Because she's a great cook, she, she does really good meals now, and, uh, but, but co- learning to cook is a bit of a, especially when you're self-taught, is a bit of a steep learning curve. And just so you know, Like any wise man, I asked her for permission to tell this story, okay? So wives, don't be judging me too harshly. But when we were newlyweds, we were both working, and uh, so we were busy, and Kirsten had a crock pot, and so she made this Thai peanut dish, and it it called for garlic. Uh, And so she put what she thought was two cloves of garlic in. Uh, We go to work, come home, and uh, we open the door, and it's like Kramer from Seinfeld. It hits you like a wall of force. Well, that's peanut. There's a lot of garlic smell in there. Well, we didn't want, we hadn't tried this recipe before. Maybe that's just what it's like. So we dished it up, prayed for our food, prayed that God would bless it to our bodies. And I, I don't want to say that it's impossible for God to do some things, but we tried to eat it. And then we ordered pizza. And so what happened was a a misunderstanding of what a clove is. She's putting it in and saying, this seems like a lot of garlic, but I got to do what the recipe says. So she knows now a head or a cluster is the full thing. A clove is just the small inside part. We got it straight now. We're good to go. (laughs) But what's your experience of failure? And I hope maybe it's probably not as insignificant as that. But have you ever tried to do something and just failed tremendously? I don't mean just a little Pinterest fail. I mean like something real and just absolutely bombed it. Have you ever tried to do something and you've let people down? You've maybe let yourself down and you've hurt them or yourself. And maybe you said you would do something and you weren't able to do it. And you went maybe against totally what you said you would do. Well, when I was younger, I made a rash promise to God never to do something. And I broke that promise shortly thereafter. And I felt trapped by this promise. Uh, And so the guilt and shame that I felt because of my failure actually drove me deeper into despair and away from God, even though my promise was meant to reunite with God and keep me close to him. And I actually thought that my sin was hidden, and I thought that I was the only one who knew about it, but I was only fooling myself because uh, I had a godly friend that came up to me and said, you know that everybody knows, right? Like, it's, you're not hiding it from anybody. And as much as, as being confronted by that gave me a little bit of ah, I actually felt a lot of freedom in that because I had just been hurting myself. And when I was confronted, I found the freedom. And uh, by finding out that other people knew, and yet they still loved me, they still cared for me, they still accepted me, through them, I really felt God's love 
and forgiveness. And I'm sure that many of you could perhaps relate to my experience in some way or another. Perhaps you made a a rash promise to God like I did, or like in our passage this morning, like Peter did. Peter proudly promised Jesus when Jesus was foretelling his crucifixion. Peter said, never, Lord. I'll die before I let that happen. And then what happens is the night when he is betrayed, he denies even knowing Jesus. Not just once, not just twice, but three times. Peter was given three times, three tries to live up to his promise. And yet he failed Jesus miserably. And Peter, ashamed, runs away and grieves his own weakness. But there's hope. Because we see this beautiful picture of reconciliation and restoration that all of us can get hope from. So our, our primary passage this morning is from John 21, 1 to 23. It'll be up on the screen behind me or uh, in front of you there. So uh, please track along in whatever version you have. I'm reading out of the NIV. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. For they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And this is the part I really want to highlight here. Uh, Verse 15 and on. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, 
follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that the disciple would not die. But Jesus didn't say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Would you please join me in praying? Father God, I pray that this morning as we are looking at the forgiveness that you have offered Peter, that all of us would uh, have things in our lives, if we have things in our lives that are holding us back from you, if we have areas of unknown sin, unconfessed sins, or things that we think that we're hiding, maybe even from you and from others, I pray that your Holy Spirit would highlight these things, not to make us feel bad, but because you want to forgive us. You want to love us. You want us to be close to you. And our shame tries to make us run away from you. But I pray that, like Peter, we would have the courage to run towards you. So as we continue to go through this morning's message, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just be speaking to each one of us on a heart level. Please be with us and bless uh, the reading of your word to our bodies and our minds and to our spirits, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So at this point, Jesus has been resurrected. And as John tells us, this is the third time that Jesus meets with his disciples. And some people look at this passage and go, well, they went fishing. Like, they're, they're not really obeying what Jesus had them to do. But actually, like, it's a very practical thing for them to do. They needed to eat. They didn't have very much money. So they knew how to fish. So they went fishing. They went fishing to make maybe a little bit of money, maybe to, uh, to just feed themselves. And uh, it, some people wonder why they were fishing at night. But this is actually uh, the way fishermen often would fish in this day. Because they would have nets that, uh, that would drag down a certain amount. They'd often drape them between two boats. And they, the fish at nighttime would be nearer the surface. During the day, because it would be hot, they would go down to the bottom. But they had been out all night, and they didn't catch any fish. And then uh, Jesus comes along, and they don't know it's him, but he comes along and says, well, cast your net on the other side of the boat, which it makes no sense. The way that their boats were designed, the nets were meant to be cast on the one side, because on the other side they had rigging and other things that would have gotten in the way, but they said, well, we haven't been successful. They throw it in, and they catch a huge amount of fish. And so they were experienced fishermen, and when this unknown person on the shore was telling them what to do, they just decided to do with it. And the, the thing that we can pull out of this is that sometimes the wisdom of somebody who knows better than us may seem like foolishness, but maybe we are the fools who think that our sensical dis directions make sense to us, but we don't have the whole picture. So this is talking a little bit about trust versus pride. They could have thought, well, who's this guy on the shore? Like, what does he know? We've been going all night, but instead they choose, well, let's do it. And then they're able to load in a huge haul of fish. And this actually is a metaphor that's used earlier in the gospel and in other gospels when Jesus said he'll make them fishers of men. And so it's a metaphor of what their work is to do, is that uh, Jesus gives them directions and he provides the results that they need. And so John recognizes instantly that the man on the shore is Jesus. And you have to love Peter. <laughs> Upon realizing that it's Jesus, 
he puts on his big cloak and then jumps into the water and starts running to Jesus. And this shows that Peter obviously is fit because even with all of these clothes on, he's still able to make it out to the shore, 100, 100 yards, it says, through the water. And he gets there. But uh, the, the thing on his mind is just to get to Jesus. That's all he has on mind. But Jesus actually sends him back. He sends him back to the boat and says, well, help those people. Help them bring in the fish that I provided for you. Now, there are a few key things that I want to highlight out of the passage this morning. The first is the restoration of Peter. He had broken his promise to Jesus, and he was ashamed of it. And he was cut up inside for what he had done. And yet, Jesus gently and lovingly restores him and then gives him meaningful work to do. And the second thing is that each of us has our own unique journey to live. We each have a path to walk, but we get in trouble when we start comparing ourselves and our journey and our path to those around us. And Jesus restores us to a right relationship in him and then gives us a meaningful role to fulfill that only each of us can walk. So Peter, Peter's a great guy. He's, uh, he provides a lot of hope to me. He's super impulsive, first of all. He just, he sees Jesus, and you'd think you'd want to swim without all of your exterior clothes on, but he puts on his clothes and just goes straight for Jesus. He just doesn't care. He's going straight to Jesus. And he messes up more than once, makes some bad mistakes, some of the worst ones in the Bible, and yet his heart is in the right place. He just loves Jesus. And this gives me hope for when I make mistakes. When I'm impulsive or stubborn-headed, the only person in the Bible that's actually perfect is Jesus. The rest of the people that we look in there are imperfect. In fact, that's an awesome thing about the Bible. It records history how it really happened. You know, if I was writing a history book, and they usually say that history books are written by the victors, because they make themselves look better, and they kind of gloss over some of their kind of unsavory details. But the Bible records things how they truly happened. One of the, the greatest men in the Old Testament that we learn in kids' Bible classes all the time is about David. David's lifted up as an amazing person, and he was a man after God's own heart. And yet he was a murderer and an adulterer. And so the people in the Bible are imperfect. And yet... The, the story behind each of them is that God's grace goes beyond that, and he uses imperfect people. So none of us needs to be perfect. We just need to follow the perfect Jesus. And so at the end of this, uh, the end of this passage, after Jesus restores Peter, he gives him his marching orders. But the, the process that Jesus walks Peter through is a beautiful one. So he comes up to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, yes, you know I love you. He says, of course you know, you're God. You, you know that I love you, yes. And it says, he does this three times. And each time Jesus responds with, feed my sheep or feed my lambs. And so he's giving him a purpose. And it says that Peter is, is hurt because Jesus actually asked him three times. But Jesus is doing heart surgery here. Jesus is restoring him. Peter had three opportunities to say, I know Jesus, and I love him, and I serve him. And he denied him three times. So Jesus instead gives him three opportunities to redeclare his love and then to give him purpose. 
And sometimes God does this with us. Maybe it's not the, the asking us three times, do you love me? But maybe we've failed at something over and over again. And yet he's still gracious and he gives us another chance. So I don't know what this looks like for you, but maybe it's t- him telling you, you should go and talk to this person. Go talk to this person who looks lonely and just tell them that you care about them. Is there anything you can do to help? And maybe you failed that over and over and over again, but yet God still gives you another chance and another chance. So the process that Jesus uses to restore Peter first starts with spending time with him. He shares a meal with him and the three denials echoed by the three confessions of his love. And there's something important to note here. Jesus never tells Peter to go and feed other people until Peter's actually fed himself. And in this, in this passage, it's they have a meal together. And even though uh, Jesus provided them with 153 fish, he already had a meal that he was cooking and waiting for them. And that's to show that Jesus is truly the one providing their needs. And so he feeds Peter, he eats with him, and then he gives him his marching order. And so Peter had rashly promised that he would die for Jesus. And then when he tries to do it in his own strength, he failed miserably. He denied Jesus three times. And now, even though Jesus, now Jesus gives him another chance. And Jesus actually tells Peter, amazingly enough, that he would die a similar death to what Jesus himself died. So the passage, it doesn't say crucifixion, but the, the imagery here is that other people would lead him where he doesn't want to go. They would stretch out his arms and he would die. And so that's an image of crucifixion. And extra biblical sources actually tell us that Peter was crucified and that he actually didn't want to be crucified the same way that Jesus was because he thought that was too great of an honor. So Peter asked to be crucified upside down. And so this man that had merely denied even knowing Jesus later in his life dies the martyr's death for Jesus. And that takes so much more courage than just saying, yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, I've walked with that guy. He says, I'm willing to die for that man. That's how great my faith is. And so Jesus lays the path before Peter, and Peter does walk boldly towards it and loyally throughout the rest of his life, but still not perfectly. The book of Acts shows us that that Peter still made mistakes. He still had times when he did things that he wasn't supposed to do, And he had uh, failed Jesus multiple times. And yet Jesus doesn't say, that's it. I'm done with you. You could have denied me two times, but the third, that's too much. And also notice that he doesn't say, well, you you have to grovel first, and then I'll forgive you. Jesus doesn't set this thing before him that say, go and pay for what you have done for me, and then I'll consider forgiving you. Instead, Jesus is ready to forgive him right away. So this, this process of leading him through the three confessions of his love isn't for Jesus' sake. It's actually for Peter's sake. It's the healing that Peter needs is the affirmation that, yes, I love Jesus. Yes, I love him. Yes, I love him. And so hear me say this. Jesus is ready to forgive anyone, no matter what they've done. Jesus is ready to forgive you, no matter what you've done. No matter how many times you've let him down, no matter how many times you've broken your promises to him, no matter how many times you've sinned, no matter what you've done, Jesus is ready 
to forgive you. And that isn't to make light of sin, because sin is a big deal. Sin is such a big deal that Jesus had to die for it. But if you say, well, I have to beat myself up first. I have to feel bad enough. I have to draw away from God and really kind of beat myself up. And then I can come to him, and I, I have to do all of these things, and then I can be, receive forgiveness from Jesus. That's actually not making your sin a big deal, like we maybe think it is. That's actually making a small deal of what Jesus did. It's saying, yeah, Jesus, I know you died on the cross, and you, you paid the price, but, and you're ready to forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. That's really saying that your forgiveness is more important than Jesus' forgiveness. And that's spitting in his face, to be honest. And that's just saying, well, Jesus, I got I to gotta beat myself up first, which is not at all true. And so the interchange between Jesus and Peter wasn't to, to make Jesus feel better about himself, be like, yeah, I, now I know, now I can trust Peter. No, it's to make Peter realize that, he's, that he actually does love Jesus. So no matter what you've done, Jesus still loves you, and he's still offering his forgiveness to you. And it's never too late on this side of eternity. It's, there's never a moment while you're still alive that it's too late to ask Jesus for forgiveness. And God's will is for everyone to be saved. He doesn't want anyone to be separated from him. And he's actually ready to restore every single person like a beloved child. And so sometimes we think we beat ourselves up or punish ourselves or make ourselves bad enough, then God is ready to forgive me. But that's a misunderstanding of the relational component to forgiveness. And so I've heard some people say that, well, why can't God just forgive everyone? Why can't, like, he just say, well, I've, I've dealt with sin, everyone's forgiven, everyone can go to heaven. That's actually totally misunderstanding what forgiveness is. For forgiveness can be extended, but unless it's accepted, there can't be reconciliation in a relationship. So if you're going to do anything as a servant and a follower of Jesus, then it has to be built on Jesus' work, on his grace, on his forgiveness. And so Jesus restores Peter to a relationship with him, and then he is able to do something of value. So all of us, goodness knows, have failed God at times. And yet he still chooses us. He still wants us to do something. The church is not God's plan B. For, it's God's plan A to save the world. And there isn't a plan B. If we don't share our faith, then others won't hear it. It's not like God is waiting, well, okay, when they fail and they don't do what I'm going to do, then this is my backup. We're it. That's all there is. And so God is ready to forgive everyone, but unless we tell them that he's ready to forgive them, then how will they know? And so this isn't about them earning forgiveness or about us earning forgiveness because nothing could ever possibly do that. Nothing that we could do would be good enough to earn God's forgiveness. It's grace from beginning to end. It's God's gift to us because he loves us. And so this is given, given by God for each of us to do a meaningful work in our, in, and through our lives. So just as the work of John and Peter, they, it was costly. It cost them a great deal. For John, 
It cost him extra biblical sources. So they did things like boil him alive. They did things like uh, to stone him. They did all of these things. And yet John lived to a ripe old age. And in the, the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the later letters, and Revelation, he's an old man. And they couldn't kill him. So they put him on the island of Patmos and just sent him away in a cave. And uh, there's actually people that think, well, John uh, is still living somewhere. But even as this passage says, Jesus never actually said he wouldn't die. He just says, well, what is it to you if he doesn't die until I return? He's correcting Jesus. And then Peter himself, he lived his life so boldly that it cost him his very life. That he died on the cross as a way of spreading the faith and the hope and the forgiveness that can be found in Jesus alone. And this week I read uh, a story about a Christian uh, church planter in a primarily Hindu country. And the, uh, this church planter's father had actually been a church planter as well. And at the time he had been very successful. He planted multiple churches. And there was a Hindu man who was quite influential in his community that came to him and asked him to pray with him. And he thought, well, that's great. This is going to be an amazing thing. I'll pray for him. God's doing something in his life. And so he goes into a private room, closes his eyes, and starts praying for this Hindu man. And then the, the Hindu man, while his eyes were closed, stabbed him repeatedly. And so this man, uh, this man as he was dying, the, his son had seen the Hindu man run out of the house. And his son came in. And as the man was dying, he, has, he was pleading with his son. He said, you have to find my murderer. And you have to tell him, I forgive him, I love him, and you have to tell him the hope that is found in Jesus. And then he said, and you have to continue my work. You have to continue to plant churches, because people need to hear about the love that, and forgiveness that Jesus offers them. And so this man did this. He continues to church plant to this day, continues his father's legacy. And I don't know if he ever found that Hindu man. But that man, how could he ever know that he was forgiven by the man he murdered unless he was found? Now, would he accept that forgiveness? Because what kind of hate does it take to want to kill another human being? So he couldn't experience that forgiveness unless he was told. And yet he still has a choice to make. Is a choice to accept that forgiveness or to reject it. And that's the role that each of us have. We have the, the, the role of those who have been forgiven by God for what we have done to go into the world and spread the forgiveness that is offered. So Peter went from strength to strength after this point. He was the man that Jesus used as the head of his church. He said he was his rock, which was a play on his word. Peter, Petra means rock. And so he was the foundation of the church. And in the book of Acts, he preaches one sermon and thousands of people are saved. And yet he still makes mistakes. He still stumbles after that. But have you ever been in the circumstance where you felt like you've been asked to do something or called to do something by God and you question him and you say, you've, you've got to have made a mistake here. There's, there's got to be someone better than me. And you think of your own inadequacies. Maybe you think you don't know the Bible enough. Maybe you don't think you're faithful enough in prayer. Maybe you don't think you're good enough, qualified enough, whatever. And you're not alone because Moses, who was a pretty decent guy in the Old Testament, he did a couple of important things. He too had this argument with God and said, I, I can't do that. I can't even speak right. 
And so God says, well, that's no problem. Go ahead anyway. And after still arguing with God, God makes a concession, says, fine, you're, you're cousin Aaron. You can use him as your mouthpiece. But I'm speaking to you, and then he'll speak to them. So it's just one more step. It's almost like a translator. But God calls who he wants to call, and then he gives you the strength and the energy and the things that you need to do it. So the truth is all of us are unqualified. God has given us the task of saving the world. That's a minor thing, right? No big deal. And yet, it's a huge deal. But the thing is that Jesus says, you're not alone. He gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. But so when Peter was given the, the assignment of, well, you're going to die a martyr's death, his instant reaction is to point at John. And there's a little bit of a cool rivalry going on between them. It's kind of funny. And he says, okay, well, what about him? What, what is he going to do? Is he going to one-up me? Is he going to do something better than me? What's going on with him? And so he's comparing himself to John. He's like, well, what about him? And Jesus rebukes him and says, don't worry about him. You follow me. This is your path. This is your journey. You walk it. And so part of the call as a follower of Jesus is to follow the path that he's given you as an individual, not the path he's given somebody else to walk. So each of us has a unique journey to walk, and we each have unique gifts abilities, or in my case, lack thereof. I'm just kidding. But from a young age, we're all, we're all, one of the first phrases that comes out of our mouth is that's not fair. So we look around at other people who are maybe more successful than us, maybe have a better job than us. Maybe we think they have an easier life than us. And so we start to compare ourselves to a situation in which everything was just absolutely fair and equal. And it's not. Good people get sick. Bad people don't, it seems like. And the Bible laments this over and over. Why is it that the unrighteous are rich and healthy and well-off, and yet the righteous are cast down and are crushed and perplexed? And we ask these questions, and we compare ourselves to other people, and yet life's not fair. God is just and God is fair, but he's given each of us a path to walk, and he's given us what we need. And the work that he's given us is not just in our own strength. It's cooperative and through the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't mean that everything's great. Even as uh, Gerald has said, not the whole, I'm paraphrasing, it's my wording, but the world's not always sunshine and roses. There's good things for us to do and there's good things in this life, but there's also hardships in this life. And we need God every moment of every day to help us and be with us. But it's so easy to get caught up in the trap of comparison. And uh, social media makes this really easy. So it's really easy to look at somebody else's Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat feed and look. And there's actually a series of, um, of they're called memes. So it's a, a picture that'll put up and it's something that gets replicated or duplicated. And they're Instagram versus reality pictures. And so someone will post their perfect picture from Instagram that took them 20 minutes to try and pick where they're sucking it in just right and moving just right and posing their leg just right. And then the relaxed look. So it's the perfect Instagram versus reality. And this is even just a poke at how fake social media can be. And But we can even do this without social media. We can do that in our lives. We can put on our fake happy face. Everything's happy, happy, joy, joy. And yet our lives are full of hard things. Not everything is sunshine and roses. Not everything is good. 
and yet we look at our lives and the real things going on in our lives, and then we compare them to the best highlight reel of other people's lives. We'll look maybe on their Facebook and see, well, they're, they're vacationing down in Mexico for six months out of the year. That would be nice. I wish I could made that kind of money to be able to vacation down there for six months. And it's so easy to get caught up in that. And even as Kirsten and I shared a few weeks ago uh, with the journey of waiting to have another child, it was so easy to get caught up in comparison. There's people on social media that are uh, humble bragging about, well, you know, I'm so happy that I've been blessed this way. I, you know, my third child, my fourth child. Or they're complaining about pregnancy symptoms or they're complaining about this or they're complaining about their kids or they're happy about this. And it's so easy to get caught up and go, well, what about me? Come on, God, where's, where's my thing? Where, where, where do I get this? And before you all judge me, I know you all do it too. So but just, okay? But it's so easy to get caught up in that. And yet... We each have our own journey. And it's, it's the hope and the thing that we say is we hope that when we look back, we'll see what happened. And maybe we will on this side of life. Maybe it'll be the other side of eternity. But there's hope that we have. And the help that we have is Jesus walking alongside of us. So again, this is one reason why I love the Bible so much. Because it's not just the highlight reel of the best of the best. It's real people in real situations with a real and amazing God who does amazing things. That's the beautiful thing. The story of the Bible isn't these perfect people that did these amazing things. It's these imperfect, broken people that a perfect God used to do amazing things. That's the hope that we can have. And so at the beginning, I asked you what your experience with failure is. The Bible tells us that all have fallen short of the perfection that is needed to be in right relationship with God. None of us are perfect. I'm sorry to burst your bubble if you think you are, but none of us are perfect. Yet, a relationship with God is possible. Not by our strength, but by God's strength. So I don't know where you are in your walk with God, but he does. And take comfort in the failure of Peter and my failure and the failure of other people in the Bible that God's not ready to give up on you. God's never going to give up on you. And so don't get caught up and distracted in other people's journey or in beating yourselves up. You have a path to follow that God has given you. So walk it boldly and walk it in the help of the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you to take hope, to take courage, and to accept the forgiveness of Jesus that he offers you. And perhaps for the first time ever, to say, Jesus, I need you. I want to walk with you. I want to follow you. Or maybe for the hundredth time, maybe for the thousandth time, you need to say, God, forgive me. I want to follow you. Help me. I believe. Help my unbelief. And so I would encourage you to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers you. And the second part is the command to follow him. He says to Peter that, he accepts his love, and then he says, follow me. That's Jesus calling for you this morning, to follow him. So would you please join me in prayer? Father, I pray that uh, as we receive your forgiveness, that we would experience your love for us, maybe for the millionth time or maybe for the first time. And that as we walk through this life, maybe stumbling, maybe imperfectly, 
but uh, with the faith that Peter has just to run after you, Jesus. I pray that we would all have that faith and that desire and that willingness to follow you wherever that leads, Lord. This life is not easy, and this life isn't built for us to just have fun. This life is meant for us to have purpose. So I pray that you would give us the courage to follow you wherever you are going, to go into the dark places of this world and bring light, to go into the hopeless places and to bring hope. And Lord, the, even just the circumstances with these young men from Humboldt, Saskatchewan, and the coaches and those who have passed away, Jesus, this is such a hard thing to even think about. And uh, yet, Lord, there's a whole bunch of people that are grieving and wondering where were, was God in this? Lord, these situations are hard for us to know the answer, but we know that you have love and you have forgiveness that is ready for all those to accept it. You don't force us, you don't twist our hand, but yet you love us and you're like a father with his arms outstretched waiting for us to return to you so that we could be loved. And so I thank you for who you are, Jesus. I thank you for your work in our lives. And I pray for this week that we would be people who are found faithful in spending time with you, in reading your word, in praying, and in sharing the hope and the forgiveness that is found in you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.